What's wrong with antitrust and industrial policy? Today on The Curious Task, I speak with Mike Munger. Welcome to The Curious Task from the Institute for Liberal Studies, where we explore economics, politics, philosophy, and other ideas from a classical liberal perspective. I'm Alex Aragona, your host, and today I'm speaking with Mike Munger. Mike is an economist and a professor of political science at Duke University. He has taught at Dartmouth College, University of Texas, and University of North Carolina. His primary research focus is on the functioning of markets, regulation, and government institutions. He's been published in numerous journals and is the author of many other things, including his book released in 2019, Is Capitalism Sustainable? That was actually the question of the first podcast we recorded together, and I highly recommend checking that out as well. Mike, welcome back to The Curious Task. It is a pleasure. It's great to have you back on, Mike. So, as you know, we base each of our episodes on a question and go over the answers and conversation takes us. Our question today to explore is, what's wrong with antitrust and industrial policy? So we'll have a chance to explore both of those concepts. And I'd like to start with antitrust first, and we'll connect that with industrial policy later. But first, I want to start with the basics, which is what exactly is antitrust? Now, I thought this was a good place to start. You have a paper that notes... 1941 to 1977 as the era of antitrust. But I want to start a conversation a little before that, because you do note it's interesting what came before this, because you say antitrust of that era was really the government realizing it had to deal with the large trust and monopolies that it nurtured. So can you take us back a bit before that antitrust era and talk about how the government is actually nurturing and creating monopolies or or that era of the the big trust. I think a bit of historical background would be interesting here and and what you mean by that. That's a really big question. Let me see if I can do it in two minutes. I should do like Ayn Rand and stand on one foot and see if I can do it. But (laughs) um, since the beginning of time, government has sought sources of revenue and mechanisms of control. And in fact, in a way, it's the job of government to do those things. It needs revenue to carry out its function. And it needs to control the borders and the military of a state in order to satisfy citizens. It also needs to control citizens as a sidelight. And so those two things may be in conflict. So my dissertation advisor, Douglas North, uh, and some other several co-authors on different things, famously wrote that there's a difference between a limited access order and an open access order. A limited access order is where the state sells monopolies to powerful groups, and then those monopolies are like franchises, and they're able to collect tax revenue, or maybe it's the salt monopoly. So you're the only one who can import salt into the UK, and so you can collect taxes on that, and then the crown just takes the revenue. You're in charge of collecting the taxes and raising prices, and so they can just sub-optimize. The difficulty is that once you've established that sort of monopoly, and that's what it is, a monopoly, you're selling monopolies. Once you've established that kind of monopoly, in order to reform this and say, you know, it'd be better if we could have competition, we could have free entry, we could have more firms, we could have innovation for consumers, the companies that you sold the monopoly to said, oh, hell no, you're going to have to buy us out. This is a really valuable right that you've given to us. And so from 2000 BC through 1900, That was the way most governments work. And as our friend Deidre McCloskey has pointed out, there was the beginning of this change and awakening a great enrichment that resulted during the Industrial uh, Revolution 
that was many new firms entering, but it called into question all of these monopolies that were given. So there's this ferment. And so a lot of large corporations established what in the 1890s and 2000s were called trusts. So Standard Oil in the United States, large railroad barons like um, Cornelius Vanderbilt. And so they, in a way, were a good way for it was the government is it's easier for the government to regulate a single incumbent, just as it always had been. This was nothing new. The difference was the progressive reform starting in about the 1890 and uh, Theodore Roosevelt in the United States. There were others in Europe. There was actually a movement also in Canada, although it wasn't as fervent. But they, they called themselves trust busters. They were going to break these firms up. Well, they didn't really break them up. What they tried to do, and we'll talk about this later, what they did was they tried to devise an optimal industrial structure. So it was a planning exercise. It wasn't, we want competition. But it was breaking them up so that they could have an optimal industrial structure. And so that's why the two things kind of proceed in parallel. Now, but so before 1941, we have the Sherman Act. We have a series of acts by the U.S. Congress. But the courts were not enthusiastic about enforcing this. The Justice Department was not enthusiastic about enforcing it. The Federal Trade Commission, which was established in 1913, it was my first job out of graduate school. But when the Federal Trade Commission was established in 1913, they mostly did consumer protection. They didn't work on antitrust. So although there were laws, there was very little prosecution. And that brings us to 1941. We're still in all through the Great Depression era, the New Deal government found it much easier to deal with monopolies. And for the same reason that that had always been true, and that was that it was as if they were selling a monopoly, they then had control over that monopoly because they could deny it. And that really gave them power over them. That meant that the firm had to do what the government said, but the firm got the, the payoff of the monopoly profits. So, so what would character, I, I don't mean like the one day where everything turned because turning points aren't usually like that, but what characteristically shifts in your mind when things go from the era of, if you will, uh, planning and cooperation and nurturing between, you know, the, the state and, and the big trusts and so on and so forth to the sort of era of antitrust? Like, how do we define the era of antitrust? What was happening there, to, tactically speaking, from the government's perspective? There were some developments in economics including the writing down of proofs of the existence of general equilibrium and the advancement of a notion of perfect competition. Now, from 1941 to 1945, the world was at war. And so the, the reason I stopped in 41 was 41 to 45 was even more monopoly. That was, the, that was in a way, the worst. Right. But starting in 1945, 1946, there was a change in this idea of perfect competition and the benefits in the in the mind the mind of theoretical economists the general equilibrium kind of model and the market failure model the story was you need many firms we want to preserve choice for consumers so the the main thing was the number of choices available to consumers the idea was the number of choices available to consumers was the best measure of the quality of the industry and so the, the big era of antitrust, 45 through 76 or 77, was the aggressive pursuit, the, the denying of many mergers. So mergers and acquisitions where two firms in the same industry try to buy each other, that, those were denied. And there was a lot of regulation of price. There was uh, 
a lot of industries became public utilities. So the private electric companies were regulated to the point they were now public utilities. So that was the golden era of uh, antitrust. And again, it's a kind of industrial policy in the sense that the government is trying to plan the best industrial structure. What's interesting is they were using a model. Now it's a bizarre model, but they were using a model of economics to justify this. And that, that model was perfect competition. So the more closely an industry approximated perfect competition, the better. That's fine in wheat. It makes no sense in railroads. Right. For the reason that exactly, if you think of the difference between what's involved in wheat and railroads, for, for sure. So, so and then later on, you trace the move. And I, again, I'm trying to build the timeline. I'm sure you've already caught on to that, that this sort of gave way to an era where policymakers settled on sort of or moved on to, I should say, more of the consumer welfare standard. So if we complete the timeline, what's what's caps this off before we get on to the future? Just what caps off the history? There was a movement from the University of Chicago generally and the development of law and economics, partly based on the work of Henry Manny, but in particular, the book by Robert Bork, The Antitrust Paradox, which pointed out that really the economic model of antitrust was based on consumer welfare. The reason that we care about a single monopoly firm is that that firm will raise price and restrict output. And then there's a loss of consumer surplus because there are many people who would buy the product at a competitive price that won't buy it at the monopoly price. And nobody gets that. The fact that there are all these mutually beneficial transactions that fail to take place are a social loss. Okay, but what if then some market practice increases consumer welfare more than the loss that results from having relatively few firms. So we're talking about railroads, we're talking about televisions, we're talking about grocery stores. These are big chains, and they actually benefit consumers from owning some of their upstream suppliers or some of their downstream retailers so that they can get better and cheaper products on their supply chain and they can supply better customer service in a retail outlet. So that means that since really the justification for antitrust was not competition per se, competition is a means to an end. Competition is the way that we achieve benefits to consumers. All right, but then we ought to count all benefits to consumers. So in 1977, there was a famous case involving Sylvania Television. Sylvania Television wanted to have their TVs sold in retail outlets where there were knowledgeable salespeople who could explain the television to mm. the, the purchaser. Maybe you want this, maybe you want this. Uh, they, could, they could talk about repairs. They could talk about reliability. Those people were paid more than someone in just some fly-by-night outlet that sells a bunch of televisions. You don't know anything about it. Right. So the question was, is Sylvania allowed to do that? In effect, it was resale price maintenance. Is Sylvania allowed to charge a higher price for its televisions and to have better customer service, given that it's a pretty competitive industry? Nobody claimed that televisions wasn't a competitive industry. That's not really true now. But at the time, there were 10 or 12 different television mm -hmm. manufacturers. Now, that's not wheat. That's not millions of different producers. But it's still 10 or 12. So if Sylvania is selling something of value and consumers are willing to pay a higher price to get better customer service, that's not an antitrust problem. They're not raising the price to get monopoly profits. They're raising the price to provide better customer service for a better experience for consumers. And whether that's good or not, the consumers can decide. So that was the test. The consumer welfare test was, will this 
practice, which until now has been per se illegal under the interpretation of the antitrust statutes, will this practice, does it plausibly benefit consumers? And if it does, it doesn't matter if it harms labor, if it harms competitors, if there's fewer choices, because there are better choices for consumers. Okay, and that, that was a good summary at the end there of, of that con- consumer standard. I just want to just make sure I summarize the antitrust standard that came before that correctly. So the summary of that one, it's fair to say, would basically be they're heading towards that model of perfect competition regardless of the other, well, secondary considerations. So There's that, an end be- in itself. Okay, under- understood. And we covered a lot of the what just there, and I want to kind of go back through some of these at least and talk about about the how because I'm, I'm a little interested and in, and also to tease it out a bit for our listeners here too tactically speaking what kinds of things did the state do to actually implement the how of this like you know I'm, I'm sure that the kind of way they worked with industry or or regulated it if you will was different in that progressive era versus the antitrust you, you touched on it a bit with the anti-merger stuff for instance versus the consumer welfare like of course we can't go through all of American history here but but just tactically speaking what kinds of activities did we see the state doing to, to to work with industry throughout those different things, and how did they characteristically change? The Sherman Act has two clauses. One basically talks statically about industry structure. The other talks about practices that tend to monopolize. And then those two were instantiated by the Robinson-Patman Act, Um, Interestingly, the antitrust laws in the U.S. at least were largely at first used against unions. So there were supposed to be these these big trusts and corporations, but it was used against labor because a labor union was a a contract in restraint of trade. So let me say one more thing. The, the, The old common law solution was that contracts in restraint of trade were not enforceable in court. So if you and I make an arrangement where we will not charge a price below the agreed on price, but then I cheat and I charge a lower price. That's actually the essence of competition. I, you take me to court and the court says, well, this is a contract in restraint of trade. It's not enforceable. Right. So that's actually one way of doing antitrust, just not enforcing contracts in restraint of trade. The Sherman Act went beyond that and had criminal penalties for having a structure that was monopoly or that was behavior that tended towards monopoly. And that gives you the answer for what Uh, how the enforcement worked. First, they looked at mergers um, and it's kind of rules of thumb. If the post-merger structure of the industry had fewer than three viable firms, for example, that might be a violation. So it takes Mm. interpretation. Now, should it be four? Should it be two? Certainly one would be a monopoly, but maybe two or three is enough that we'll, we'll, we'll say that no, a merger can't, or it could be regional. There could be four firms nationally, but uh, it may be for cement. This it often cases often happen for cement. Cement is not something you can transport very far, and so a regional monopoly in cement they would not allow the merger between two large regional companies that produce that hauled cement, say in the Northeast. The second thing that the antitrust authorities looked at was behavior, pricing strategies, and contracts. So um, did you have some agreement where your downstream suppliers couldn't, and we already talked about Sylvania, but that's an example where you, you can't raise your price and then require that the retailers not charge a price. They have to charge a price at least as high as you maintain, which is called resale price maintenance. So there, there, were, there were a variety of complicated, per se illegal practices that might include not horizontal 
purchases, which is what structure talks about, but vertical purchases where you buy your supplier or you buy your retailer. And the, the theory was that if you had something close to a monopoly at one level and then you bought a retailer, that would that would the monopoly would metastasize. And now you would also be a monopoly at the next level or the previous level. You're the only purchaser. And that that idea prevented a lot of companies from being able to protect themselves either by ensuring a source for supplies or ensuring better retail outlets by contracting with a consumer um, the, with re, with the uh, cashiers, the selling people who would have a better knowledge of the product. And so there, there, were, there was a forest of restrictions on the practices that companies should engage in. But the two main things are structure, preventing mergers, and then practice, which might be vertical integration or things like resale price maintenance. And, and if that was in the antitrust era, did much of that change when we moved over to the consumer welfare standard, or is it pretty much it, 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 it bled in similar fashions to that standard? Well, the, the consumer welfare standard, under the consumer welfare standard, the structure argument goes through unscathed. So if you have five firms and there's a merger and you end up with two, that's pretty close to a monopoly. That harms consumers. What got stripped away was all the stuff about the second clause, which was practices. Resale price maintenance, you had to look at. Maybe it was monopoly, but it's not per se. So the big difference, and per se just means on its face, that just the practice itself. All you have to do is prove the company did this. Now, the government, if they wanted to bring charges, had to prove that they did this and that it harmed consumers. Because the company's defense wasn't necessarily, we didn't do this. In a murder trial, I have to say I didn't do it. If here I can say, yes, we did do that, but it benefited consumers, which made it much harder, much, much, much harder to prove an antitrust offense. Right. And I'm going to shift our gear here to talking about what you say we're heading to in the next epoch of antitrust, because I think that'll also be a good time to start blending in some discussion of of what you think is ultimately wrong with all this or, or misguided, at least. So. As we move into the future, as as discussions are happening in the present about big trusts, big firms, and so on, can you first explain what, what you feel is now being identified by whether it's politicians or whoever else, industry experts, whatever, as the biggest troubling uh, business and market power discussions that are, that are ultimately influencing why we're talking in ourselves into, in some way, the next epoch of, of antitrust, if you will? What's sort of the, uh, the low-hanging fruit everyone's pointing to as why this is a new problem we have to deal with and so on? So I would say even 10 years ago, there, there was this sort of triumphalism. And certainly uh, in the early 1990s, George Will famously said, um, the Cold War is over and the University of Chicago won. Mm. So what he meant was these, these economic ideas about competition and consumer welfare just dominated the study of law and economics. But perhaps unsurprisingly, there were changes in the way that business is done. And I think there was also a reaction, um, I, at the risk of sounding Hegelian, there's a dialectic that where opposition at some point coalesces and the, the arguments in favor of the existing regime are weakened, and then we emerge with some kind of new synthesis. So we'll see what the result is. We're looking at the synthesis. But right now, the, the, the antithesis is that 
we are seeing the development of what I call giants. And actually, a number of people have actually used the, the same word. I use it um, ironically. They're using it unironically. There, there are giant firms that dominate, and I'm making air quotes, an industry. The question is, how do we define an industry? That's always been the essence of antitrust. When I was at the Federal Trade Commission, 7-Up, um, Pepsi tried to buy 7-Up. Well, are those in the same industry? They're both soft drinks. So if you just think of carbonated sweet and soft drinks, that's a that seems like they're monopolizing. Mm. But stuff to drink, that's a really big industry. Right. And so that's a tiny amount of the stuff to drink industry. So the question is, is Facebook an industry or a firm? Right. Is Google an industry or a firm? If Google is itself an entire industry, then of course it's a monopoly because platforms by their nature are unitary. So let me step back and say a little bit about platforms. A platform is a place, either physical or virtual, in which peer-to-peer transactions have the cost of uh, negotiating and delivering goods or services reduced in three ways. Triangulation, transfer, and trust. Triangulation means we can easily find what we're looking for. Transfer means the good or service is delivered and paid for. And trust means that we know that we're not going to be cheated and that our information will be taken care of. So a platform that a a setting that does those three things is a platform. And that means that a platform like Uber does not sell taxi rides. Right. It sells reductions in transactions costs so a person who has a car in a few extra minutes can find a passenger who wants a ride. The transaction takes place between the two people, but it takes place on the platform. Now, there's a long history of platform. The souk uh, 4,000 years ago in Aleppo in Syria was a platform where people could go. They knew to go and buy and sell things there. The Sears catalog was the first, I think, the first virtual platform. Mm. Sears catalog did not sell stuff. They sold space to people who were trying to sell stuff. So the Sears catalog goes out and somebody who's trying to sell stuff can find somebody who wants to buy it. And Sears just processed the transaction by uh, taking a cut of the money and then delivering the stuff on their trains. So now Amazon is a virtual platform. Amazon sells some stuff, but mostly they sell space and they sell uh, or use proprietary software called Amazon Web Services. Those two things are where they make most of their money, not selling stuff themselves, but mediating a transaction between somebody who has stuff and somebody who wants to buy it. So platforms by their nature are very large. Why? Because there really there are economies of scale, particularly in trust. So imagine that you were to invent a new way, a better way, and it might not be hard, to have ride-sharing. So you announce, I'm, I have a new ride-sharing platform. Get it on your phone, and you can get better, cheaper rides in large cities all over the world. So I download it, and I, I, I want to go somewhere. I'm in the Czech Republic. I want to go from Brno to uh, Prague. There's no cars. <laughs> you don't have any inventory. It, the software is not enough. You have to have a whole bunch of enough density of transactions to have people start using it. But unless you have that, they won't start using it. And you need a big inventory of reviews. The only way that we can solve the problem of trust is I look and your driver has a thousand good reviews. I think this is going to be safe. 
if I'm on Airbnb and I'm going to rent my apartment, I see that this renter has 400 good reviews. They've stayed a lot of places. I'm willing to rent to them. So platforms by their nature become giants precisely because the economies of scale in triangulation transfer and particularly trust look like entry barriers. So the response seems to be, we should break them up. That's a terrible idea. You don't want two different platforms so that you and I can share cat videos. There should be one called Facebook. Now, that's a problem because they have power, but it's not an antitrust problem. So the argument that I've tried to make is, I admit there's a problem. Giants are a problem, but it's political power, not antitrust, that is the problem. Breaking them up is pointless. Right. Actually, and, and on that exact note, I want to read read that quote which from, from you in this paper that says pretty much uh, the same thing there. And, and, and I want to jump off with a couple of questions about that. So that's a great segue. So, so here's, here's a quote from Mike's paper. He says, just as he was saying, there really are problems and that those problems are problems of power. The difficulty is that antitrust, and here's the key, I think, is directed narrowly at market power where the danger lies in the concentration of political and social power. I do not have the answers for this appropriate response to the power of the new social platform, quote-unquote, giants, but I am sure that applying outdated solutions to the wrong problem will delay the, t- the time when we start to take these formidable new difficulties seriously. And I, and I think that bridges nicely into another question I want to ask, which is it seems that a lot of people have a hard time unbundling sort of corporate power in the sense of what they do on the front end, let's say Amazon, big platform, I see it, I go to Amazon.ca, oh my God, look how much they're doing. They they have a hard time unbundling that from like all the all the back end stuff that you and I would probably agree is not the greatest stuff, you know, what, how they're in bed with certain municipalities, privileges, so on and so forth. So I just kind of want to stop here and emphasize so you could actually tease that out a little further that you're dividing the market power discussion or, or what's happening on the actual market between as far as transactions are concerned between consumers from all the other corporate behavior, which you still grant as a problem, correct? Yes. Um, I have an admission. Uh, it's embarrassing. I'm a libertarian. And libertarians, I think. <laughs> Breaking <should> news. Be, <laughs> I think libertarians should be concerned about concentrations of power. Mm-hmm. Often it is the state. There is no relationship so abjectly unequal as that between the ruler and the ruled. However, the British East India Company also sucked, and that was a corporation. So it is certainly possible for companies to have either private armies or control over so much information Mm -hmm. that they have, I don't know if you'd call it political power, it's something else. It's something other than market power. Well, they didn't suck because they had tea being yep. delivered to people. They sure. sucked for all the other reasons, right? They, they had cheap tea. They had a bunch of stuff that they delivered. Mm-hmm. And then they also had private armies, which were catastrophic. Mm-hmm. And so I don't know that we can say that Amazon or Facebook has private armies, but what they do is they have an army of information, which when it is used along with kinds of advertising, or decisions about how to present political arguments may disproportionately and I would say wrongly affect the democratic process. So I'm not so worried about markets. However, it may be that democracy is just not consistent with big concentrations of power. So instead of reading antitrust, I think we should read Foucault. Mm. The difficulty that I see is we haven't thought about this as concentrations of power. This is a new threat. So I want to concede that it's a threat. 
But I want to say that I think thinking of it in terms of antitrust is going to delay any actual solution uh, of, of the, the, the political problem. And so one possibility, for example, would be something like Glass-Steagall. So Glass-Steagall was a complicated bit of legislation in the United States for, for the banking industry. And what Glass-Steagall said was that you could not be both a commercial bank and a retail bank that did savings and loans. And the reason is commercial banks take big risks. Savings and loans are there to finance mortgages. We want them to be solvent. So you can't do both. So it could be that Facebook could not both harvest your data for use on Facebook and own TikTok or sell that information to uh, Google or Amazon. So that there's a there's a wall between where your information can go because that's ancillary to the consumer right. uh, welfare standard. Right, absolutely. And and you and you, sp- you spoke about armies, and I'm just thinking of what are what, you know. Obviously, Facebook and Apple don't don't have armies, for instance. You said like the East India Tea Company did, but maybe there's a newer form we should consider, like you know, armies of PR and com- people and commercial lawyers that actively work with the government, for instance, and exercise that kind of power. As you said, it's a new type of problem. It's not like one we can point to 1812 and see, hey, that's that's the exact same problem. This is a new paradigm. But it, but it, it may be more powerful than an army, precisely mm-hmm. because it's not clear that it's the use of force. And in a way, it's almost not the use of force, but it's coercive in the sense that it is unconsented. Right. And I think that's actually an excellent place to take our break. And we're going to do that right now. Everyone, you're listening to Curious Task. I'm speaking with Mike Munger today. The Curious Task is a podcast from the Institute for Liberal Studies. Feel free to send questions, feedback, guest recommendations, or anything else that's on your mind about the show to curioustask at liberalstudies.ca. As always, a huge thanks to our supporters on Patreon, including Danny Leroy, Andy Crooks, and Elizabeth Aragona. Remember to like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter at The Curious Task, and rate us on Apple Podcasts or wherever else you're listening to The Curious Task. Welcome back, everyone. You're listening to The Curious Task. I'm speaking with Mike Munger today. So, Mike, I want to pivot a little bit into industrial policy now. I think our first half was great talk about antitrust and some of its implications and and what's wrong with it, especially when people look at many of the other problems that are valid, as you said, but they look at them as market problems, not problems of social and political power. But it is, of course, true, I think, to say that uh, politicians and and other advocates of, you know, for instance, regulating industry do often step in, you know, from market-based rhetoric into social and political rhetoric as well. But I guess that sort of leads us to a different problem, I think, if you allow me to make the bridge, which is, I, I, it seems to me that if indeed we start these discussions of social power, political power, and so on and so forth, and the response from regulators or whoever else is to basically start talking about, well, we don't want to just regulate the market, we also want to supervise other aspects connected to that, aren't we kind of just back to the discussion of industrial policy then and social goals, goals through that, for example? So antitrust really is a manifestation of industrial policy. Industrial Mm. policy is, well, let me make an analogy that some people may find offensive, but heck, that's what I do. So, so many people on the left at any sort of hint of creationism in biology would say, well, no, these complex systems emerged and they weren't planned and the evolutionary process has given us all these beautiful structures like the human eye and these these complex morphologies that have overcome 
entropies to such an extent that look at the complexity of the biological world. And all of that came about, came about in a way that was unplanned and entirely emergent. The more somebody believes that, as far as I can tell, the less likely they are to believe that there are emergent processes in societies where complex supply chains and firms and ideas about the way to organize groups of people, those have to be planned from the top down. So all of the, um, they all become creationists in the social realm. Now, they, they don't believe in God, they believe in the state, but for many of them, there's not much difference because they have a kind of secular religion. So there's a, there's a number of commandments and things that they have to act on. I'm generally skeptical of creationism when it comes to government. I think that top-down solutions lack both the information and the incentives that would be needed to plan things well. So I, cities, by and large, should be unplanned. The emergent things where we find ways to be able to serve each other better will act much better, will, act, will turn out much better if they're decentralized. So industrial structure is the idea that we can pick winners and losers some firms, and some industries. So let me give an example. I am concerned about climate change. I know a lot of my libertarian friends are not concerned about climate change. I am. I think that the solution is a comprehensive carbon tax in most of the Western world, because I don't know which processes it would be cheapest to reduce carbon in. But if we tax all of these different processes that generate carbon, People will try to find new ways to uh, economize. Mm -hmm. They'll use electric or re uh, renewable energy in those places where it makes sense. We haven't done that. What we have done is say, we're going to subsidize solar. Solar is right. the way. Which wind. We're going to subsidize wind. Make a policy out of the industry. We know, we know the way to do this. Mm -hmm. That's a terrible idea. Instead, we should have taxed the externality. Now, you know, maybe you disagree, don't think it's a problem, but the anytime if there is a problem, it is better to tax the externality than to subsidize one solution because the state, any individual, would be terrible at knowing what the correct solution is. Let different emergent processes compete to solve the problem. So that's in a microcosm, that's the problem with industrial policy. We're terrible at picking winners and losers. And it would seem to as me, a oh, go ahead, go ahead. As a result, the, the countries that have tried to use industrial policy have fallen behind. And the biggest example, I think, was Japan. All through the 70s and early 80s, we heard how awesome Japan was and how it was just unstoppable because they have the Ministry of Industry and Trade. Well, not so much, it turned out. They actually uh, slowed down their growth, and they ended not being nearly as innovative as they would have been if they had not planned an industrial structure. So the over and over again, we this, this is reproven, that in top-down, an industrial structure will result. And we have a planning process. It's called profit and loss. Mm -hmm. Profit and loss produce a calculus for what industries should be invested in and which ones we should get rid of. It's really hard to beat profit and loss, but a government um, policy that can beat profit and loss, I would claim in the paper, even if somebody were to come up with it, 
it is unlikely to be implemented for political reasons. And, and it's, it seems to me that when it comes to the, the broader discussion of industrial policy, both the mainstream, if you'll call it that political left and right, especially in the United States, you know, uh, people sort of weasel around the definition I find. Of course, you, you might find the odd person that is for an industrial policy of complete sort of authoritarian, if you will, a- economic scheming where you would literally manage it right from the top down, from the government down. But other folks seem to be uh, not so interested in calling what they're saying industrial policy, but but ultimately they're talking about setting up certain guardrails and guidelines lines, a boost here and there, making sure things don't go off the cliff over there, that kind of thing. But that would th- those kind of uh, industrial guardrails, if you will, still amount to the same thing, at least in my view. But, but you tell me your thoughts on that. I, I, some people try to split the difference. Obviously, there is tactically, but, but you could probably chart it under the same umbrella, I would think. Well, you just pointed out the problem. Um, guardrails, by definition are designed to limit profits or to prevent losses. And profits and losses are the signal, that is the price that tells us about whether this industry should expand or not. Now, if you're worried about externalities and you want to tax the externality, okay, if you want to have a carbon tax, that's a different thing. But that means you don't know what the right industrial structure would be. So the, the difficulty that I see is that If we're going to have guardrails and we're going to say we want to make sure this industry, which otherwise could not compete, um, we're going to try to keep around. Now, maybe for uh, national defense reasons, although it's actually a little hard to make that argument, um, but maybe for steel, maybe for shipbuilding. We need some capacity for building these things. We have in the United States a very high tariff on sugar. And there's a national defense reason because our soldiers will need sugar if they're going to go into the field. So as a result, the nations of the Caribbean, where we try to send aid, cannot import their sugar to the United States. They're prevented from the trade that would enable their home industries actually to make enough money to enrich their very poor populations. We say, you know, we just send the money, but the money goes to the top leaders rather than because we have an industrial policy. Mm-hmm. So we're, we're going to say we need, we need to use guardrails so that some industries which would fail are propped up, and we're going to have inducements so that some industries will expand because we want to subsidize the right activities like solar. And on, on both sides of that, you're, you're right. What they're saying is we're going to nudge the market. Obviously, we're still using the market because we're not really planning things and we're not setting prices. But we're putting a thumb on the scale as if we knew more than we knew. And the second thing, it's as if knowing it is the same as doing it. So I'm an expert. I'm an economist. All is known by me. I go to the president and I say, here's the companies you should subsidize. He says, oh, well, thank you. And then he looks at the list of companies that are big campaign contribution contributors for the next Senate race. Those are the companies that get subsidized. So there's two distinct problems. Mm. One is information, the Hayekian problem, where nobody knows enough to choose an industrial structure. And the other is the public choice problem, where political incentives do not line up with the common good. Right. And in, in other words, even if you really 
could in this make make up world, make believe world, if you really could choose the three best companies to subsidize, whether or not that actually happens in the way it should is a whole different question as well. So the the whole thing ends up getting counterbalanced by that mess anyway. Yes. I suppose it's also important to note too that um, the guardrails don't just keep certain companies in or regulated or whatever, or, you know, or even sometimes focus their energies in a certain way in a distorted manner and some certain investments that they might not otherwise do. Like I think um, solar panels and wind has been a good example of that. But I think you know these guardrails also functions as walls for other forces of the market to enter the same highway, which I think is another huge problem because often people that are proponents of this type of industrial policy will say something like, well, you know, the market could be entering this area and doing better, but it's not. So we have to continue doing our thing over here and making sure this industry does X, Y, and Z. But I suppose the the fair tra- the fair enough trap door under that is, well, well, how would you know? You have these guardrails also keeping people out, whether it's high cost to entry or just not being allowed to enter or whatever else, I think. That, that's a really important point. And it does take us back to Doug North's observation about limited access orders. So you have this company that used political influence and they bought this monopoly fair and square. And so you say we're going to allow entry. They all of their workers mobilize and say that we're going to vote. Now, where is the countervailing power? It's a bunch of people who don't yet work for the companies that don't yet exist who would be competitors. There's no way to mobilize voters who don't exist. So the political process is always going to protect existing rents. So the the if you want to talk about antitrust, it's the government monopoly that's a problem. Because entry into that market is essentially impossible. Right. And one thing that I wanted to touch on here, too, because I found it very interesting through uh, the, the quote at the beginning of one of your papers there from Francis Fukuyama. And, and I also that made me research other other things, too, about folks that focus on industrial policy, and make observations. Um, it, what I found interesting about that is that it, it seemed to it seems to be an open secret to a lot of people that observe industrial policy or, or at least think on it, whether they're for it or against it. They basically conclude that, well, you know, maybe it could work, but in order for it to work, that the industrial policy planners or whatever else you want to call them have to effectively be shielded from all the other stuff, like obviously market forces being one of them and uh, political forces being the other. So that's kind of like a more we want to talk about social political power for the last bit here. I find that's an interesting admission by anyone observing this, that basically, if this were to work, it ultimately has to be set off in some sort of managerial fashion over here that's shielded. And I think anyone considering industrial policy, even as a good thing, needs to consider that as well. As you said, it's not just a market discussion. It's also about who, who we're giving the reins to in certain areas or, 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 or you know, because to me, that effectively creates another uh, privileged class that's trying to, in their eyes, uh, defend themselves from other privileged classes that they say will get involved in their business. That, that's a little messy too, right there, as far as social and political power. You, you have put your finger on the reason that I wrote the paper was I did not realize that this was essentially an open secret. Mm. Um, and I should have. Um, the people who are advocating for industrial policy are smart. I didn't give them enough credit. So it's obvious that industrial policy won't work if you leave it up to elected officials. It's obvious. So I thought, oh, they've never read the public choice objection. I understand that they, they're going to ignore Hayek and say that we can have enough information because expertise, they're technocrats. We can come up with ways of learning this. And we have really complicated economic models that tell us what to do. Let's suppose that's true. Even the advocates of industrial policy who believe they have enough information just openly say, and of course, this would have to be shielded from politics, 
Well, that's a new and interesting development. It's called fascism. Right. So if you're saying that the only way that we can do this is to have an unelected leader who can make industrial policy decisions without any feedback from the public, and that's that's what you're advocating for, you should come out and say that. You're welcome to advocate for that, but damn. Yeah, no, damn for sure. And I think it is an important point to really hammer into because I think a lot of, and I, and I don't mean this in a mean way, I think it's just true because I think in some cases it is true. A lot of sort of standard uh, libertarian answer trapdoors, uh, initial responses, if you will, to folks that might be either full out industrial policy proponents or even just touching on it. As you said, like, you know, the sort of standard thing is, you know, read Hayek, look at emergent uh, discu- uh, discussions about emergent open access orders and, and, you know, spontaneous order, you know, public choice. Like that's sort of like the standard sandbox we all play in. But as you said, it's very interesting to note that um, in some ways, some of the proponents of industrial policy say, well, oh, oh, yeah, yes. we know. They say, we know, right? Of course, that's not what we want. So I think that's that's a pretty interesting point in and of itself. Well, Mike, we, we traced a lot. We somehow managed to plow through a bunch of things about antitrust and industrial policy. Um I, I think it's actually about time to get to our formal wrap up then, because I mean, we, we made really good time on this, but I think that was really good takes all the way through. So let's try if we can to bring the point, both of these points actually full circle, and put a finer point on it. So let me officially ask you the last question here, which is, what do you hope are ultimately the main takeaways for someone listening to here? What is wrong with antitrust? on the one hand, and with industrial policy on the other, or if we can connect the two. In other words, if you wanted people to leave here with one or two or just a few takeaways, if anything, on antitrust and industrial policy, what would those be? First, on antitrust policy, it is a mistake to think that we can manage the new firms in the third great economic revolution so the, I think the first great economic revolution was the Neolithic. The second was the industrial. We're now in a platform economy where it is a catastrophic mistake to say that we're going to manage this with antitrust. It's going to make things worse. And in fact, I think what's likely to happen is something like what the United States did with Bell Telephone. Bell Telephone was a monopoly. And so we broke it up into regional monopolies. How did that help? So for 20 years, there was very little innovation on long distance because you have all these tiny little uh, local monopolies. Finally, MCI was allowed to start selling um, long distance service. And eventually, all of the local bell telephones broke up. I try to tell my sons, I used to have to wait till after 11 p.m. to make a long distance phone call within the state because it was really expensive. Now I think nothing of making a phone call to Chile at any time because it's dirt cheap. Mm-hmm. So we, we had a set of regulations that were designed to solve a problem of monopoly. The result was that the regulated structure completely prevented any sort of entry or innovation. And As a result, antitrust is not the right approach. It was never the right approach, but it's really not the right approach now. Um, I do use an example, tongue-in-cheek. Suppose that, well, there's this platform of 30, 32 million unique users per day. They completely control what people write on their platform. And if you write something that they don't like, they will delete it. So they have enormous power. We should break up the New York Times. 
because I've just described the New York Times website. Well, the New York Times is not an industry, but it is a platform. And it is it has become gigantic. Most newspapers have shrunk. A lot of local newspapers have disappeared. The New York Times has prospered. Well, that means that the New York Times now has more power. The last thing you'd want to do is break them up. That doesn't make any sense. On, on uh, Twitter, I saw someone say that what they would like to do is find several authors on Medium who would all have a shared... Um, price to be able to sign up to read their uh, columns. And I tweeted back, yes, we could call that a magazine. That's existed for a long time where you have several authors all together. That collection isn't an antitrust violation. It's a way of serving consumers. And so thinking of this of antitrust is a mistake. On the other hand, you may, may remember in the fourth Star Wars movie, A New Hope, where the commander comes in and talks to Grand Moff Tarkin and says, we've analyzed their attack, sir, and there is a potential problem. And Grand Moff Tarkov says, well, I evacuated our moment of triumph. I think you overestimate their chances. That's the way my people, the pro-market people, are responding. There is actually a problem. I have analyzed the attack of the left, and they're right. There is a problem with power. We need to concede that rather than just dismiss it and say, oh, that's crony capitalism or what well, we all we need is real capitalism. This in this structure, if you're going to say no antitrust enforcement, we need to propose some alternative for limiting the political and social power of these giant entities that economics is creating because of efficiency. Excellent. And that that was that was antitrust on that end. I'm not sure if you wanted to have any closing comments on industrial policy. I know it's a lot at the same time, but or we can leave it at that. Industrial policy is the idea that the government or any entity can choose winners and losers. And sometimes, like in wartime, you have to do that because you have a unified structure of command. We are blessed to have a mostly peaceful planet, although it looks like Ukraine and Russia may be a problem for a bit. But except in wartime, The government is going to be terrible at picking winners and losers, partly for information problems, but in my opinion, mostly for political reasons, unless you want to abandon democracy. And sometimes we do that. In the United States, we have a Supreme Court. They are appointed for life, and they get to make these decisions about laws precisely so that they will be insulated from political pressures. I think you have to be careful how often you do that. We're just going to have to deal with all the messiness of voting and democracy and recognize there's limits on what technocrats can do. They can't just impose coercive policies at gunpoint. They have to persuade us. And that's the way democracy should work. I think that's an excellent place to leave it on on both pillars of our conversation today. Mike Munger, thank you very much for joining me on The Curious Task again. It was a pleasure. The Curious Task is a podcast from the Institute for Liberal Studies. This episode was produced by Alex Aragona, Sabine Elchidiak, and Eric Segang. Our executive producer is Matt Bufton. The music you hear on the podcast is by Lindy Voppenfjord. You should check out his other stuff online. The Curious Task exists today because of donations of time and money from those creating it and listeners like yourself. Check us out on Patreon and find out how you can support us and get access to exclusive offers. I'm Alex Aragona, and thank you very much for joining us on The Curious Task. Thank you.